Instagram on DFBS with King Shabbat. The biggest movement of Western Allied troops since the fall of the Soviet Union is taking place right on Russia's borders. But Putin's given the go-ahead for an all-out strike against Islamic State in Syria. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy's old and bold are saying the UK hasn't enough warships and there's no money for more. And the grandest of all the living admirals is 95. British troops are taking part in NATO's largest military exercise in Eastern Europe since the end of the Cold War. Exercise Anaconda 16 is being led by the US and the host nation Poland, but involves troops from other European nations. Sky's defence correspondent Alistair Bunkle was there to watch it all begin and joins me now along with BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Um, Alistair, good to speak to you today. Give us the numbers. How many troops are there and where are they all from exactly? Yeah, hi Kate. Uh, 31,000 troops in total of which around about 1,000 are from the UK, 10,000-odd from the United States, and then made up of uh, militaries from 24 countries in all. So the US, UK, as I said, Poland, obviously, being the host country, Portugal, France, uh, Germany, Italy, Spain, Canada, uh, and all the sort of kind of usual suspects. And what about the hardware involved? Well, it, there's a lot, um, both on the ground and in the air, and in some cases uh, there are maritime assets as well. So in terms of what I saw, there was a massive parachute jump that happened on the first day. C-17s and C-130s in particular uh, from Germany, although a number of them left, and this was quite interesting, a number of them left Fort Bragg in North Carolina. They were given their orders, and 25, 26 hours later, having flown 11 hours over the Atlantic, they were jumping over the plains of Poland. Mm. What are the big set pieces of this exercise? Well, other than that, uh, which was visually superb, I mean, it was absolutely spectacular, there has been a big bridge-building exercise which happened uh, yesterday, very early in the hours yesterday, so the longest amphibious bridge that has ever been made, 350 metres long, mm. and that involved the Brits and the Germans very heavily. The Royal Engineers in particular were uh, integral to all of that. That allowed 70 vehicles to cross uh, the river on their way to another point. Uh, they had protection from above with Polish F-16 aircraft, US Apache aircraft, uh, helicopters as well. Then there's a chemical warfare exercise taking place this coming weekend. So I think those are kind of three big highlights. Mm, you spoke to Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, commander of the US Army in Europe. What did yeah. he say about the exercise and why it's being staged exactly? Yeah, we spent, we spent the day with him uh, flying around in his Blackhawk helicopter, so some great access to him and uh, really interesting to get his thoughts. I mean, essentially, look, the unwritten or the unspoken thing is, is that this is clearly a show of strength to Russia and you can't get away from that. But in terms of sort of drilling down into the real sort of military purpose of of it. It's about what they call interoperability or cooperability. Basically, all these various nations, 24 different countries coming together and working well together. And that's not just face to face. That's not just personal relationships. More importantly than that, it's making sure that if you've got, um, I don't know, say you've got an Italian uh, vehicle, making sure that uh, a, a fuel nozzle from a Spanish design or Spanish manufactured piece of equipment fits into an Italian vehicle, making sure that a British radio can communicate with German radio, for example. Mm -hmm. It's ironing out all the very little uh, bits and bobs. And the one thing that he said to me that really stuck in my mind was that he explained that it's not always that easy to travel 
around Europe as various different militaries. So if you had 72 hours to react, say, to some sort of Russian threat, you probably couldn't do it at the moment because of all the diplomatic clearances you need to get. Mm. And so he was calling for a military Schengen zone, not meaning that you can travel with impunity, but meaning that you break down a lot of those diplomatic uh, sort of barriers that you have to go through every time you just have to ferry stuff around. Fascinating idea. Um, Just in your experience as a reporter, have you seen anything like this? What did you come away thinking? It was big on scale. I think the problem with a lot of these things is that they are exercises. You know, they are they're playing at war. They are war games. They're not the real thing, uh, but they are hugely vital for the militaries to uh, practice what they do and make sure that they do talk to each other properly. Uh, it's yeah, it's a very big scale. We've seen it at uh, bull tops, um, other various exercises as well around Europe. But in terms of a big parachute drop, yeah, I mean, you know, as someone who works in television, it makes for great mm. television. <laughs> All right, Alistair Bunker from Sky News, thank you for joining us today. So, how has President Putin reacted to this massive military show of strength on his doorstep? Well, Dr. Ma- Dr. Martin McCauley is a Soviet and Russian analyst from University College London, and he's here in the studio. Good to speak to you today, Martin. Um, just imagine if there were a Russian equivalent of this. How do you think NATO would react? Well, Russia's had a lot of exercises, uh, military exercises, uh, coming up to the border of Belarus uh, and uh, um, Eastern Europe. Uh, and they, they are, in fact, moving troops from Afghanistan, from Tajikistan to Western Russia, uh, because they think that there's a threat, there's a real threat from uh, NATO in Western Europe. One doesn't know whether that is really politics or whether it's for the Russian public to uh, convince them that there is a threat, because that's very important for Putin. He must convince the Russian public uh, that NATO is a threat, because from his point of view, uh, it's really uh, he doesn't believe in attack. It's play-acting from NATO's point of view. It's putting on a big show and so on to impress him. But the real action's in Syria, and that's where Russia's really concerned, because that's where they're losing people uh, and where the war is continuing. Yes, we'll be coming on to that in a little while. Um, Christopher, what do you think President Putin will be thinking of all of this? If you go back to the fall of Soviet Union and the fall, fall of communism, and you say around about 1990, 1991, and at that time, and I know we've discussed this before, but let's put it in Putin's mind, at that time, NATO said, don't worry... All those countries which you regarded as your own and were in fact a cordon between NATO countries and and the Soviet Union, all those countries like Poland, where this exercise is taking place, Hungary, etc., etc., uh, we will not touch them. We will not go there. We are now launching, right on his doorstep, the mm. biggest exercise you've seen since 1991. Now, it is not... It is huge, but it is not huge in terms of warfare. I mean, 31,000 troops sounds a lot of people. It's not. It's only three mixed divisions. Uh, a, a big air assault with, with paratroops coming out of, uh, out of aeroplanes. There hasn't been a successful landing of paratroops uh, since probably 1938 so in Abyssinia, it, and they don't do that anymore. Now, his people know that, mm. but it's the, it's the audacity and the broken promise that gets him more than anything else. Martin McCauley, um, a Royal Navy frigate has escorted a Russian submarine through the English Channel. That happened yesterday. Um, happens from time to time. Yes, because from the <clears throat> Russian point of view, they must react. 
Uh, is it, does it bear relation to this exercise? Yes. Well, if that is happening, then they, they will do that. They will fly. They will inflect, uh, fly into uh, uh, Latvian or Estonian airspace and then go back and so on. So that from, from a Russian point of view, they must react to feel. Uh, if they, in fact, don't react, they'll be seen as weak. Hey, listen, listen. I like the idea that you've got a big exercise going on. We're saying, you know, the Russians are almost coming. It's a great threat. What do we do? We find a the Russian Russians submarine. <laughs> and there's a Russian. We've got one submarine going up the channel with one frigate. I mean, the last ship in the Navy that's probably uh, can sail yeah, we'll in the talk about ships channel. a little later. No, no, but the point is... <laughs> I mean, it, and and also at the same time you get uh, you get two retired admirals out and saying, "Oh, things are terrible." The we'll is, no, no, no. <laughs> what I'm putting this in context: nobody sits down to plan an exercise like this. And if you look what's happening in the French papers, the American papers, the Swedish papers, incidentally, mm. who've dragged up the uh, the idea of a Russian threat, nobody should be surprised that all these stories are coming out, including the submarine coming up the channel mm. um, at the time of the big exercise because what happens, that's fed into the exercise and it becomes part of the operational detail of the exercise as if it were for real. Martin McCauley, how, how closely do you think Russian intelligence will be watching this exercise, Anaconda? Very, very closely indeed because... And how, how will they be watching te- it exactly? Technically, technically, they will regard NATO as militarily more advanced, uh, especially in electronics and things like that. So therefore, they, they'll be uh, um, studying it very, very carefully. Uh, they will be saying, uh, we're accused of engaging in hybrid warfare. That's soft and hard power and so on. Uh, is NATO doing the same thing? And they would say, well, they're escorting this uh, Russian submarine up the English Channel. The Swedes are getting very concerned now and so on. And that is all part of hard power and soft power mixed up, hybrid warfare. In other words, uh, the Russians are very, very good at this. Uh, and in fact, the Americans have been saying we have to, uh, we must counter mm. uh, Russian uh, propaganda because they're so good at it because they've been practicing it for centuries. Because mm. uh, they've always been very weak. They've seen themselves as weak uh, on the defensive, so therefore you must create uh, a screen for your own people to believe that in fact you're reacting, you're strong, uh, and the threat is always out there. There's a big wolf out there. It's true, though, we haven't talked about the, the, the state or the tensions in East-West relations like this for probably 30 years. That's what's changed. It's changed in, in fact, there are, there are perceptions which we no longer think they might do that. Mm. There are perceptions now that we are, on both sides, doing things we didn't before. For example, uh, an American-led coalition into Afghanistan. If you're Russian, you look and say, we were in, in, in Afghanistan and we got out for all the right reasons. Now they're doing it. That's rather brave. They go into Syria. That's rather brave from their point of view. So we are talking about reality mm. of tensions rather than just the... Uh, just the exercise theory. Okay, well, let's talk about Russia in, in in this context of Syria now. Martin McCauley, has Russia reinforced its military operations in Syria? What's it doing exactly at the moment? Russia is very concerned about the north of Syria. You find, they're doing about 25, 30 sorties a day, uh, and they're concentrating on the north, places like Aleppo, uh, and leaving the south uh, to the uh, uh, Hezbollah, uh, and to the Iranians and to uh, the uh, Syrian Arab army. So from the Russian point of view, they're in a strong position. Uh, they and the Iranians are really calling shots in Syria. And there's a changing uh, landscape in terms of the mil- militia being involved, is that right? Yes, there are now Afghan militias who are Hazaris, who are Shias from Afghanistan under uh, Iranian leadership, 
And don't forget Iranians are Shias. Mm. And so we've got Afghanistan. And they've been brought in by the Iranians, are they? Yes. Fighting it together. Yeah. Mm. And they're fighting together. And of course, the Sunnis, the majority of people um, people in, in Afghanistan are Sunni, and they are, have taken a different view. And so the Shias in Hazare, which is borders on Iran, have been complaining about discrimination uh, and so on. So this conflict now, an uh, increased conflict within Afghanistan. Where is the, where are we at at the moment with the diplomacy, Christopher? Uh, diplomacy has got a problem. I mean, there's a meeting today uh, of international international groups at uh, I think it's a foreign minister level and ambassador level to try and uh, how, how we how we fix Syria. You know whether we can actually in get Russia on side, whether we get Iranians on side, uh, and the Saud, uh, Saudis, of course, because what this is really is is a proxy war between I- I- Iran and Saudi America, uh, Saudi uh, uh, Arabia. Now the important thing is. Nothing can be done to solve Syria unless you one stop the stop the this proxy war between Iran and uh, uh, the Saudis. In other words, between Shia and Sunnis. Nothing can be done until you know what you're going to do with Assad, President Assad. Can we get? What is the latest thinking on that? I mean, in terms of the Western powers, the Russians um, don't support Assad as a person or as a leader. What they are concerned about is not allowing an Islamist to take over, so that for any other secular leader would be acceptable to them. Mm. And what they've said is, is it, what they have said, and um, everybody has said, including the rebels who are only going to these meetings now because they're getting these promises, if Assad agrees that this is part of the process for him to stand aside eventually... You think he'd agree? Uh, at the moment... Not I now, mean, but maybe well, one apart, day? Apart from anything else, he's not protected. And he's got to, it, it is very, very practical side of it. There's another side which we must consider. President Assad looks at the body counts. He looks at the town counts. He looks at who is fighting for whom and says, hey, listen, I'm on the winning side at the moment. Mm. And that's if you're sitting in Damascus, it's rather like sort of saying, how does Putin see what's mm. going on from Russia? If you sit in Damascus, you're saying... I think we're actually winning this war. Mm. You and mentioned, Put, sorry. Putin finds Assad rather difficult to deal with because it's a mistake to believe that the Russians can really dominate, can really force uh, and oblige because they provide most of the weapons. Mm. But they okay. can, in fact, force him to do what they want. But Assad goes his own way. He's an Arab and he will not be dictated to by a European. Best, best case scenario, what's the best outcome for Syria that you can envisage at the moment, the you way things stand? Up, you divide it up in, into uh, various regions. Uh, and you have a secular leadership, not an Islamist, because the fighting will continue until IS... Has been when you dr- say divide it up, would there be a, a region for IS, for Islamists? No, no, uh, because they'll, they'll have to drive, I think, IS out, because uh, we've forgotten about Israel. Uh, yep. Netanyahu has just been in Moscow asking Yes, Putin, let's talk Israel and their involvement. There are, two, there are two dividing it up. This is what Assad will agree to. The western side of Syria is his people. The, he would accept, it is assumed, to have the western side of Syria. Mm. In the meantime, and they understand this, they being the western allies, the western allies say, right, we now go over uh, after ISIS and we drive them out of Raqqa, etc., et and out of that part of Iraq they've got. We can then make that another federal state. So you have a federation of two states, Assad. And could that, could that be a, a peaceful federation, Martin? I think that you're looking at a, a kind of civil war now for another generation, and there's going to be conflict because there is so much distrust between the Sunnis and the Shias. 
that is almost impossible to believe that you can bring the two together. If you look at Iraq, the Iraqi government, they can't agree on anything because you have this great conflict uh, among the Sunnis and among the uh, Shias. So you have this ongoing conflict, which I think would probably be a generation. All you can do is more or less freeze the conflict. There's a footnote to this. John Vine came back three weeks ago from Prada, and she said, do you know... Uh, some from Damascus. She said you can still buy Prada in Damascus. That's telling you what a war's like. Still to come, Hillary Clinton makes the final cut and the Duke of Edinburgh at 95. Two former heads of the Royal Navy have claimed funding problems are putting its surface fleet at risk. They've told MPs replacements for ageing frigates are being delayed and that numbers of ships are already inadequate. Well, former First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope led the Navy during the 2010 Defence Review. He told the Commons Defence Committee that back then they wanted 23 frigates and destroyers, but they only got 19. It seems to me that the risk associated with taking risk on the four that was there in 2010 is still there. And so 23 would be the number that would come out of the sums in terms of the usage of frigates, which is uh, determined by their maintenance requirements, their their, uh, training requirements, uh, their deployment cycle. And the one in three of one frigate for uh, uh, deployment, one going to the deployment, one training for the, the deployment, gives you a one-in-three usage factor. So, Christopher, your favourite subject this week. Um, the Type 23s are due to start being decommissioned in five years' time. What's happening with their successor? Um, well, the successor is, in, is, is twofold, but let's talk uh, in terms of the Type 26. It ain't building yet, and this is what you've got to have. And, and it's not just in isolation. In fact, you've put a ship to sea. Uh, when we talk about, for example, the aircraft carriers, and we'll probably never have more than one aircraft carrier at sea at the same time. But you want six Type 26 as escorts, surface escorts, along with a couple mm-hmm. of uh, a Type 40, uh, Type 45 as well. So the big problem is twen- a Type 26 uh, is not at sea. It's not even properly in build. The Type 33, nobody even knows really about it. But the most important thing is that the Type 23s, to some extent, can still do the job. Because at the moment, if you want, to, if you want a, a ship to guard the United Kingdom, uh, you're never going to have enough. At the moment, with all this crisis going on, mm. yeah, with all the tensions, do you know how many ships are guarding the United Kingdom? One. That Type 23. You've got to get your yacht out, Christopher, I think. To hire. To hire immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, the ship's maker, BAE Systems, told the committee it couldn't comment on the schedule while it's in discussions with the MOD about the order. But another former First Sea Lord, Admiral Lord West, said he's sure what's behind the delays. Notwithstanding having said how much extra money there is for defence, in the near years there isn't. There's almost no money extra available this year, and we are really strapped next year. The government aren't coming clean about that. I think if they did, people understand. The British people aren't stupid. If they said, OK, you know, bloody hell, we've actually got figures are all not very good here, we've got no money, therefore we've got to delay these things, even though we really need them, I think people would say, well, that's pretty bad, and maybe we ought to think about priorities, but we understand. But to pretend that actually, oh, no, we're going to order all of these, you know, we know we, these are really important, but there are little problems of design and things, is, I'm afraid, being economical with the actuality. The reality is there's not enough money in the MOD this year and next year. Lord West, he even sounds polite when he swears, doesn't he, Christopher? He does, you know, but I remember, uh, in fact, the father who I worked for, the, the, the father of the present health secretary, 
mm-hmm. Jeremy Hunt. Mm-hmm. And Nick Hunt, it was, best, it was the best admiral I ever saw. Never got seasick, which a lot of them do. But I remember Nick Hunt saying exactly the same thing. And he was saying, you know, there are only six 16-inch guns left in the Navy, etc., etc. <laughs> they do this. They, they parade themselves up. But they're right, aren't they? But the truth is... So. Hang on, the truth is... Let's ignore, say, America, China or Russia at the moment... The United Kingdom, <laughs> uh, the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom still produces probably the best mix that it possibly can of of warships and command systems and mm. working with other countries in the whole world. But they do need to keep up the pressure, and it's the okay, when so they, they've got the cutting designs for the twenty six. Once the twenty six starts to build, they won't quieten down. They'll just ha- get to the real problem and say, now where are we going to get the people? to actually go and sail mm. them, and that's their biggest problem. Well, the MOD says it's got £8 billion being spent over the next decade, so that sounds pretty good. At this present rate of spending, the present rate of design, etc., I'm not sure they would actually be able to spend that. Really? What you've got to do, and what, um, um, and what Admiral West is doing, and he's doing it extraordinarily well, he's saying we've got to keep that money coming. You can't just say, oh, look, there's the budget for it, because nobody knows actually how much the whole thing is going to cost. You know, the Type 45s, perfect example This came of that. up at this Defence Select Committee meeting, didn't it, basically? Yeah, the, but the problem, the Type 45s, and they certainly are the best air defence destroyers in, in, in any Navy at the moment, including the, the United States Navy. Great. And then suddenly they get a power outage. And suddenly they can't sail the ships. This being suddenly, a problem with the engines in, in hot That's hot right, climates. And, the, and the generators. And it's actually got to the point where they can't fix them all as they would do because, A, uh, you can't do that at the same time because you've got other duties which you therefore have to send ships which are not adequate for them. The other thing is there aren't enough docks even to put all those ships in and get them fixed at the same time. Let's look at some other news in brief. Uh, Christopher, uh, the French, those carriers they wanted to sell to Russia, but they couldn't. OK, these are the aircraft, ca- uh, the the, um, the helicopter carriers. And at the time of Ukraine was getting... Um, the, the French were just about to hand over to the Russians two helicopter carriers. In fact, the Russians had turned up and had done, I think it was 18 months training on board and suddenly NATO got really tough and said, no, 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 we can't do this. This help. So what have the Rus- uh, French have done? They've sold them to the Egyptians. Hmm. And it's marvellous. And the first one has arrived and the second one is uh, on its way. And it's going to be called the, the Gamal Abdul Nasser, the first one. And the most ir- the great irony of calling your ship the Gamal Abdul Nasser Talking- or selling a ship to them to be called that is that it was Nasser who started pan-Arab... Uh, ideas, hmm. and he was the predecessor, or he was the successor for the whole concept of making nationalism uh, proper and workable in in the Middle East. T- talking about um, se- selling things elsewhere, some Kalashnikovs, Kalashnikovs AK-47s were due to be sold to America, uh, but actually, it's led to a kind of a relaunch in Russia. Well, yeah, because you see, the Americans are saying you're not allowed. To, I mean, these the Kalashnikovs, which everybody says, you know, if if I had to go into the desert, I'd, I'd take me Kalashnikov, and so the Americans say, well, you can't bring them into the in to the gun clubs in America now. And so what they do, they've, they've actually taken them into South America and bring them in that way. But it's a shortage. So what uh, Kalashnikov is now doing, they're going into marketing other mm. things. They've got T-shirts now. T-shirts. Bolt, what do they say on them? Uh, it says, it says uh, Kalashnikov. And <laughs> <laughs> but the other in thing that is, accent as in well. In that accent. But I've, 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 listen, I, somebody sent me the baseball cap. <laughs> with a, with the bring naked, it in next week. I've naked, got to get a picture of that. <laughs> you, you won't look good in it, I promise you. 
Now to America. It seems she's done it. Hillary Clinton has got enough votes to become the Democrat nomination for the presidential election in November. This is the first time that a woman has run for president. She and her supporters regard this as the biggest step change in the history of American politics. Simon Marks joins us from Washington. Hello, Simon. Um, Truth is, only Hillary could have done this with her pedigree. Uh, Yes, but it's taken her a lot longer, of course, to achieve than I think she might have anticipated when she got into the race last year. Nonetheless, she is portraying this as an historic milestone for her and for the United States, for all those people out there, uh, women and men, who wanted to see another glass ceiling shattered. She actually uh, was standing beneath a glass ceiling, symbolic, Hmm. of course, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a real glass ceiling when she addressed her supporters in Brooklyn on Tuesday night and said, right, I finally clinched this nomination and now we have to start fighting and unifying around my candidacy in order to save the country from Donald Trump and Mm. that is very much job number one for her, although her rival in the race for the Democratic Party's nomination, Senator Bernie Sanders, is not entirely out of the way yet. Mm. What are the bookies saying about her chances saying that she is the one uh, over Donald Trump? Well, they're saying that the odds are slightly shorter than they were just a few months ago. Donald Trump, in some polls, is now actually beating Hillary Clinton in a straight matchup. But I would throw a huge public health warning over all of these polls, <laughs> these national polls that match up Clinton versus Trump. Because at the end of the day, the presidential election is not decided that way. The presidential election is decided in a handful of so-called battleground states, swing states like Ohio, like like Florida, uh, like Wisconsin, where voters traditionally make up their minds as they go along. Sometimes they go for the Democrats, sometimes they go for the Republicans. And so the real polling that we all need to keep an eye on is the battleground state polling. And there, this election is definitely up for grabs. Christopher, Hillary's presence, how does that change the concept of leadership in the US? I'm not sure. I mean, this is the thing, uh, uh, Simon... I know we've we've had, uh, for example, uh, vice presidential uh, runners uh, who, have, who have been um, women, yep, but also um, um, and women in the most important positions. She was one of them. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was one of them, as Secretary of State. But I wonder if, just by getting this far, America, part of America, starts thinking, oh, this is you change the concept of leadership. What leadership could possibly be? Is it the biggest step change in the history of American politics? Look, I think it's a substantial shift, and it is a glass ceiling being shattered, and you're going to hear Hillary Clinton talking more and more about it because she senses that Donald Trump has a problem attracting the support of women voters. And it's much better for her to be talking about that issue than, for example, for her to be talking about her foreign yeah. policy record, which is an issue on which Donald Trump clearly intends to hammer her. I was going to ask you that next. When are they going to start debating that, do you think? Uh, Well, I think almost immediately. First of all, we're told that Donald Trump early next week is going to be making a speech about the Clintons, plural, Mm -hmm. not just Hillary, but Bill as well. And he's promising a lot of very interesting information about the way in which he claims that they have uh, enriched themselves and sold influence while in office. So he's going to stay in the mire on that for a while to come. 
Uh, she is going to get out on the stump campaigning, she hopes very soon, with Barack Obama. The president's expected to endorse her very soon, hit the stump and say, this is the woman I want walking through the door of the Oval Office. This issue of foreign policy is complicated for her because you were talking about it earlier in the programme. Mm. Syria, heck of a mess, and <laughs> it developed on the Obama-Clinton watch. Mm. So if Donald Trump can stop talking about all the Clintons' personal scandals and foibles and start trying to force her to, to, to defend her foreign policy record, he's got an opportunity to make some headway. Simon Marks from Future Story News, thanks for joining us. Um, Christopher, the Duke of Edinburgh is 95 this week. He is 95. Uh, he is, he is the, the great admiral of the fleet, the, the, which, is a, which is an appointment which is not made anymore in the Royal Navy. 95, he has been a sailor all that time. I mean, don't forget he was uh, a, a young uh, uh, midshipman and then acting uh, lieutenant when they met at Dartmouth when she was just when she was just 14 the important thing about him is that he's kept everything naval going it's a shame uh, we didn't see him at the battle of Jutland centenary uh, commemorations he, isn't it yeah i mean it, quite frankly you imagine that the air flight up there at 95 mm. uh, and all the ceremony but he was out on the streets he was out on the on on, on the parade ground uh, that mm. night in full fig <coughs> and uniform pouring with rain just as he was during the uh, during the celebrations for the Golden Jubilee, or the Diamond Jubilee, but um, the point—I think—the point with what I'm making is that he is the last of those who, apart from Harry, I suppose, who have stuck with the military right the way through. There's a long line ever since George the Second and the Battle of Dettingen in 17, whatever it was, 14 something or other, of royals who've actually gone and done mm. it. And I mean, he—he he, he had. You, you know, met they, him, have you? Yes, well, uh, we're both. Well, no, actually, he was master of Trinity House. I was just a younger brother, and so every so often you were you, you were told detailed off to go and sit beside him at dinner, <laughs> but you never spoke until you were spoken to. And when he, I, the first thing words he ever said to me is, "What's keeping you busy nowadays?" <laughs> And you said, and it's sit rep now. I said it's sit rep, Ducky. (laughs) That's all we have time for today. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to Dr. Martin McCauley. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS sit rep. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye. I'm going. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. No charges.